Okay, so the scripture reading is from Mark 6. I'm going to read from 6b to 30, and that's on page 817 if you want to find it in the Pew Bible. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given the orders to have John arrested, and he had bound him and put him in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be righteous and holy. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not refuse her, want to refuse her. So he immediately went to an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lorinda. This is definitely not a rated G story, um, but it's important for us to see what's happening here. Let's pause and pray as we come into this uh, text. Lord, we, we expect you to speak to us. We thank you that you are here through your Holy Spirit, 
and that your word still has power to speak and to change hearts. So give us open ears, open minds, open hearts, and um, teach us today in your name. Amen. So we're comparing the power of the kingdom of God with the power of Herod, the power of the world. Um, First, the power of the kingdom. In verses 6 through 13, we have Jesus calling the 12 apostles, his, his inner circle of disciples, and then sending them out two by two to continue his own ministry all around the area. It makes sense that they would go two by two just for, they'd have fellowship together, they could talk about what they're experiencing, they'd have protection on the road, but also because in the Jewish law, any important matter had to be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is signaling there's something important going on. They are witnesses to Jesus in his kingdom. Now Jesus, in other ways, is a very unconventional unorthodox Jewish rabbi. First of all, no rabbis in, in Jesus' day would handpick their disciples like Jesus did. Rather, they would have to apply and prove themselves to become a disciple. But second, no other rabbis that we know of sent out his disciples on mission. That was unheard of. Um, but this is what Jesus is doing, and this is how his power works in the kingdom. He, he empowers others to do the work that he has been doing. As a pastor, I got to tell you, this is convicting to me that Jesus is so willing. He's way more willing than most Christian leaders I know to hand over power and authority to other people. <laughs> These guys don't have any formal training. They, they barely understand who Jesus is. They actually don't really know what it means for him to be the Messiah. They've proved themselves to be, to be slow learners already. And yet, here they are being sent out with full, you know, power and authority from Jesus. It's amazing. As emissaries of the Messiah. But let's look at these instructions Jesus gives them in verses 8 through 10, where he says, Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. You know the stories of people who say, yeah, when I showed up, I had a dollar in my pocket and the clothes on my back, right? Well, they didn't even have a dollar in their pocket. He's sending them out in, in poverty, in humility, in dependence upon other people. He's telling them not to, not to jockey for better accommodations once they get somewhere. Why, why is this important? Because the messenger must embody the message. In the, in the kingdom, those who wield kingdom power must embody the message that they share. And so as Jesus sends them out in complete humility and dependence on God, they are asking other people to humble themselves. As Jesus sends them out um, um, in poverty and simplicity, they're, they're preaching to other poor, simple people. As he sends them out, of, uh, out as messengers of this humble king, they themselves are to be humble and not 
looking to, to get better accommodations here or there. They must embody the message that they share. And it's so important <clears throat> that they be genuine because the message they're bringing is more important than anything else um, around. As we see in verse 11, and Jesus says, If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. That seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Well, in this time, rabbis would tell people that once they returned from foreign lands, especially pagan lands, they should shake the dust out of their clothes before entering the Holy Land so as not to pollute the Holy Land. And so if a Jewish village saw these apostles shaking the dust off their feet, that would get their attention. This is further a message, uh, nailing in the message that repentance is necessary for everyone. Now indeed, the disciples go out and do what Jesus says and we're told in verses 12 and 13 they had great success in their ministry. Um, well, what is the overlap between, between what happens here and our lives today? Jesus is still in the business, for one, he's still in the business of entrusting authority and power to his followers. This morning in the teen Sunday school class, we were talking about Acts chapter 1, when Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were working on memorizing that verse today. So, right? You will be my witnesses with what? Power from the Holy Spirit. And what we see here in Mark is kind of the dry run for what the disciples will be asked to do later when the Holy Spirit comes. And they're out there preaching the gospel to all the world, right? But they need Jesus' power to do that, the Holy Spirit. Jesus shares his power with every single one of his followers to do his work. What about his instructions to, to take no money and no extra shirt? And I mean, even the apostles in the book of Acts didn't use that as a blueprint for ministry. The principle that still applies is that the, the messenger must embody the message, right? If we're calling people to, into repentance, do we live lives of repentance? If we're calling people to radical trust in someone they can't see, are we living in radical trust to Jesus? If we're calling people to humble themselves, and if we serve a humble king who emptied himself even to the point of death, do we humble ourselves before others? The messenger must embody the message. You see, the power of the kingdom, it's not an ends justify the means kind of thing where it doesn't matter really what you do as long as you achieve the right results. Within the kingdom, the power of Jesus can only be used effectively when it's working on us too, 
and first. Does that make sense? The messenger must embody the message. I had a meeting this week with other American Baptist church pastors in northern Vermont. And there's a, there's a new pastor in Bristol. Uh, his name is Isaac. He's from Ghana in, in Africa. And I love the, the fresh um, and the zeal, the freshness and the zeal that he brings into our group. And we were talking about our relationships as pastors, our relationship to the Bible. And he said, listen, he held up his Bible. If we're telling people this is medicine that they need to take, we better make sure it's working on ourselves first. <laughs> I said, thank you, Isaac. That's, that's a good way to put it. The messenger must embody the message. Well, let's pick up the thread of Mark's story again and follow it into the court of Herod where we'll see the absolute opposite kind of power at work. The connecting link here, Mark says, from one story to the other is that Herod's ears were tickled by what was happening with the disciples doing Jesus' ministry uh, and Jesus himself. Herod was like, who is this? And you, say, you see, some people, there were so many rumors. Some people said it must be Elijah. Some people said it must be just one of the old-time prophets kind of type people. Some people, including Herod, said it's John the Baptist back from the dead. And Herod's guilty conscience, conscience tormented him. It must be John, the one I beheaded. Herod had a, a fascination with this fiery prophet, and he feared him even as he, he, um, uh, um, he feared him even as he was fascinated by him. Now, who is this guy, Herod? Um, this Herod, Herod Antipas, was the son of Herod the Great, the one who wanted to kill Jesus when he was born. You read the, about that in Matthew. This was his son by one of ten wives. They had a very twisted family tree with a lot of ingrown branches. Now, the history books tell us that, that um, Herod Antipas's brother Philip married a woman named Herodias who is also their cousin. So not only is Herodias Herod Antipas's cousin, but it's his brother's wife. So he's committing incest in, in a double sense here. Um, and this, this man, Herod, to call him a king is a misnomer because he was just the puppet ruler of Galilee and Judea under the Roman government. He had no kingdom of his own. Uh, the, the Jewish leaders and Rome had a deal worked out where there would be a Jewish king serving in that area as long as they were loyal to Rome, okay? So... He was, not Jew, he was not a faithful Jew. His religion was a sham. He was just someone who liked power. And he would do anything to get it and to keep it. Now, um, J John landed in jail because he was telling the truth to this supposedly Jewish king that he was committing incest and adultery with his brother's wife. Well, Herod's wife Herodias really didn't like that because she um, had been seduced by Herod to marry him and she was, 
She was all too happy to climb the social ladder and become the wife of the most important man in Judea from a government standpoint. So she was really angry with John the Baptist and wanted him gone. So an opportune time comes, we're told, when Herod throws a birthday party for himself and invites all the top brass of Galilee, all the military commanders, the, the big-time politicians, probably even some of the, the religious leaders. They're all there. None of the women are there except um, his, his stepdaughter who does some kind of dance for them. We can only use our imagination to fill that in. Alcohol is flowing, we should expect. And Herod is so titillated by this dance that he makes a wildly um, uh, unrealistic boast of giving her half his kingdom. He doesn't even have a kingdom to give away. But he says, I'll give you anything you want. And she goes back to her mother, Herodias, and says, what should I ask for? And Herodias says, ah, okay. Now I can get John. She said, give me, I want the head of John the Baptist. So the, the girl, poor girl, goes back and reports that. Um, and sure enough, Herod is backed into a corner. And because of the guests there and his boasts and his oaths, he's forced, so to speak, to send the executioner and have this innocent, godly man killed in a very grisly way. This whole scene just reeks of worldly power, right? Herod is a morally bankrupt tyrant who wields the power of the state for his own advantage. Herodias is the social climber who stops at nothing to secure her status. Herod's guests are the bystanders who could say something but don't. And let it all happen. Um, everything here is like the mirror image or the photo negative of, of power in the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, power is used to help and to heal. But here it's used to kill and destroy. In the kingdom of God, um, power is used under the authority of Jesus and here, it's under no authority but, but passions and whims and self. <clears throat> In the kingdom of God, power is used to speak the truth, and here it's used to try to silence the truth. Do you see this? It's worldly power. It's the court of Herod. And this power is alive and well in the world today. There's the power of Jesus and the kingdom, and there's the power of Herod, the powers of this world. Which one should we choose? It's one of the easiest questions, right? Sunday school question. Jesus, Jesus. Um, the answer is obvious, right? We should be operating in and seeking the power of the kingdom. Why then are Christians always tempted to either be afraid of or to wield the power of Herod and worldly power. I want to leave you today with a one warning and one encouragement that we need to hear. The warning. 
If you look through church history and you look around today, you see many Christians who act as if worldly power can be used to advance the gospel, to do what Jesus wants. So whenever you see a Christian leader or ministry or someone using Christian language to get you to do something, you should ask, does this pass the smell test for worldly power? Is this person trying to, saying that they can advance the kingdom by getting invited to Herod's dinner party, right? By, by proximity to power. And if they're saying that, that's, that's something you should stay away from. When Meg and I lived in Illinois, a few examples, I would drive by this huge church on my way to school, to, to seminary. It was called Harvest Bible Chapel. Uh, and it was started in 1988 with just a few dozen people in a, uh, a high school gym. By 2012, it had grown to 13,000 members with seven campuses all over the Chicagoland area. One of the fastest growing churches in America. The pastor, James McDonald, had a nationally syndicated radio program called Walk in the Word. The, Sunday, the, the church's worship team called Vertical Worship was winning awards. By all external accounts, the church was a great success story for the kingdom of God. Right? People were getting saved. The word was being preached. Campuses were multiplying. But behind the scenes, there were red flags. The pastor, James McDonald, was a bully. He would uh, fire any staff members or elders who spoke up and disagreed with him. He began using church funds to, to, to um, line his own pockets and to buy himself nice things. When this all was exposed in 2018 by a Christian journalist named Julie Royce, um, even more you know, evidence was revealed that he was, this guy was a sham. He was, he was in love with worldly power. Apparently, he even tried contacting a hitman to take care of someone he didn't like. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Um, the weirdest thing, though, was that so many Christians attacked the journalist for outing him because they said, but, but, but good things were happening for the kingdom, right? So you're, why are you attacking the church? You see, they're thinking that worldly power can be used to advance the gospel. Here's one more example. During this election year, you're going to hear people telling you, using verses in Christian language, to claim that we need to have the right person in the White House to save the church or to save the kingdom or to save the soul of our nation. Now, Whoever you support or vote for politically is not my business, but it is our business as a church if people use Christian language to cloak desire for worldly power. And we need to be alert to that. Um, does it pass the sniff test? Are, there, are these leaders 
thinking that an invitation to Herod's party is a win for the kingdom, right? If you have to use worldly power to advance the gospel, you've already corrupted the gospel. Okay? Anytime you try to do that, anytime the messenger contradicts the message, you've already, you've already lost. The only way is to, the only way to do God's work in God's kingdom is with God's power and God's way of doing it. So here's the warning. Don't believe those who say the ends justify the means or we have to fight fire with fire or we have to play by the world's rules to score points for the kingdom. Don't believe that. Now, the reason Christians think that way is because worldly power gets results. And in fact, it often um, seems to win over God's power. And we see that in the text here today. As Mark narrates what happens to John, he's not so subtly foreshadowing what happens to Jesus. Look at all the similarities. I mean, John is arrested because of the envy of a powerful ruler. Check. Same with Jesus. John's fate is in the hands of a weak-willed political ruler who doesn't want to kill him but succumbs to pressure. Check. Sounds like Pilate and Jesus. Uh, Finally, John is executed even though he is innocent and his disciples come and take the body, just like with Jesus, right? So this is strongly foreshadowing. Even Jesus will be killed by worldly power and all of his disciples, save one, will be killed and put to death and silenced by worldly power. That's the bad news. The good news is that the king, if the kingdom of God cannot be advanced by worldly power, neither can it be stopped. Neither can it be stopped. As Mark wrote about John's disciples coming to take John's body for burial, I wonder if he had a smile on his face, thinking, we know what happened after Jesus' body was taken for burial, don't we? Right? We know that Jesus was raised from the dead and that the kingdom power, God's kingdom power was vindicated. God and his kingdom will always prevail even though it looks like worldly power is winning in the short term. So what kind of power do you want in your life? What kind of power should we seek as a church? The power of the kingdom of God. May we do that. Let's pray.